This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, new blood tests could potentially reveal your risk of dying within 10 years. Would you take it? Who else might want you to take it? AI bots and deep fakes, a closer look at the past, present, and future battles against political interference and disruption. Also, how to tackle the problem of e-scooter abandonment when transportation expert has a novel solution. Plus, prosecuting hate speech. How high should the bar be set? And how do we judge success? It's probably true already. It maybe has been for some time. That you could look at a certain individual, their lifestyle, various health issues they're dealing with. Uh, and, and, you know, an expert could come up with a, a relatively accurate assessment of, you know, their, their chances of dying within the next 10 years. And p- people get told this all the time, right? You need to change your lifestyle. If you keep this up, you are going to die. Right? So those are conversations that are already taking place. But this kind of takes that to a whole other level. Story in the National Post this week, a new blood test can foretell a person's risk of death within the next 10 years. In the largest study of its kind, researchers identified 14 biomarkers that together appear to predict all-cause mortality risk. In other words, your risk of dying. So a new tool that may in the future foretell a person's risk of dying within the next 5 or 10 years with considerable accuracy is the closest so far to a blood test to predict when the bottom will fall out, as Sharon Kirky writes in the National Post. So, yeah, there are some questions here. Would you want to know? Maybe the bigger question is, who else would want to know? So this raises a lot of ethical and and privacy issues. Joining us for some thoughts on all of this to help us navigate some of these questions. Timothy Caulfield joins us, the University of Alberta, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, Professor in the Faculty of Law and School of Public Health, Research Director of the Health Law Institute, also host of A User's Guide to Cheating Death on Netflix, and author of Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? Tim, great to have you back with us. You're welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Um, So your sense of of how meaningful this study is, how close are we to this kind of a blood test? Well, as you know, I'm always very cautious when Mm -hmm. it comes to a study like this, especially when there's a, a big headline, right, associated with it. And predicting death is, pretty, <laughs> is a pretty big headline. But with, with that caveat, you know, it, it was a pretty robust study. You know, it was 44,000 people. They followed it over 17 years. Uh, and they were able to predict death uh, with about 83% accuracy um, within, within 5 to 10 years. So yeah. that, you know, that's, that's pretty accurate. Now, look, the authors of the study also caution this is one study. We need to replicate it. We need to replicate it with a more diverse population. It was mostly people from Europe. So a lot of caveats. Uh, but certainly it does seem to suggest that this kind of more accurate prediction is going to be possible in the future. Right. And, and maybe not that far distant future. 
Yeah, that that's right. Um, and of course, there's a lot of other, uh, as you know well, a lot of other projects uh, ongoing that are re- re- related to this. You have things like uh, the genetic testing, you know, precision medicine, where they're going to be looking at, you know, your entire genome. Yeah. Things like um, measuring your telomere length. You know, these are you're measuring the little caps on your chromosomes and how fast they erode as you get older. Some suggest that might be a prediction of your biological age, but also when you might die. So I think in the future, what you're going to see is a big data attempt, you know, where you bring all of these, all of these measures together to get a sense of your risk of dying, but also even a sense of when you might die. Well, yeah, and it reminds me of the story, and we've heard of, of, of people and some high-profile people who have, you know, been informed that, you know, they, they have a, a certain specific risk with regard to breast cancer, and then they sort of preemptively get a, a mastectomy to, you know, to, to deal with that risk. So it's, so it's using that kind of technology to try to give you a, a, an indication of what you might be dealing with in the future, but it, it that, that can be dicey, can't it? Yeah, it, it really can be dicey. Um, uh, first of all, again, we have to be you know careful. This is technology that's still evolving, but but the research that we have to date tells us that for most people, when they get this information, they act, you know they say, "Oh, I'm going to change my lifestyle. Oh, you know, I don't want to die in ten years, so I'm going to you know I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to eat fruits and vegetables." Most people don't do that. You know, they they think they're going to do it and they don't. It's very hard to change people's behavior. Uh, in addition to that, there is some concern about, you know, adopting a fatalistic attitude. If you think you're going to die in the near future, are, are you going to actually go in the other direction? You know, I'm going to start eating, you know, lots of fries and smoking and drinking because, you know, let's you only live once and I'm going to die soon anyway. So I actually am not personally too concerned about that, that last one because I think the data also doesn't support that, but that is, that is a concern. But then, of course, also, Rob, what if insurance companies get a hold of this information? What if employers yeah. get a hold of this information? If it is truly predictive... That raises some really interesting questions for society. Yeah, it does. Uh, and not even a case necessarily getting hold of the information, but maybe requiring it. What if an employer requires you to take this blood test? Or what if an insurance company requires you to take this, this kind of a blood test? They, they might demand this information. Uh, I mean, that's right. And so then what we need to do is say, you know, how much information is it fair for an insurance company to have? You know, keep in mind, insurance companies can get your blood pressure now. They can, you know, get your weight. They can ask you your family history. All of that, in some sense, is to get a sense of when you're going to die. You know, they want to know your risks. So when does a task, test become too predictive to be fair, right? That's kind of the question that we'd be, we would be asking in, in, in this context. You know, in Canada, we already have at the federal level, because of these concerns, um, and I've actually been critical of it, uh, uh, an anti-genetic discrimination law to, attack, you know, to tackle just these kinds of, uh, of questions. But, but Rob, also think about the healthcare system. You know, one of the things that the authors of this study actually say, they want to do this to get a sense of, uh, of informing healthcare decisions. So if you are relatively elderly and then you take this test, it turns out that you may die in five years instead of 10 or 15. Is that going to alter how the healthcare system treats you? You know, again, an interesting question. You know, I hope not. I hope it's not going to be used in that kind of way. It's just going to be used as another way of informing decisions as opposed to the system using it to inform decisions. But again, a question that may be raised. Yeah, this is such a tough one because, I mean, I, I think at least in terms of my interaction with, with my doctor, my physician, I, I want them to know as much as possible. I think there's this fear we all have that something might be wrong with us and it's not going to get noticed. It's going to get missed. Uh, and, and, you know, you want those things to get detected. So I think we have a tendency 
to want our doctors to know as much about us as possible. The idea of, you know, being able to plug into a kind of metaphorical diagnostic machine <laughs> that can really get a sense of everything going on with you. There may be some, some healthcare value to that potentially, is there? Yeah, and, and I think that that's one of the th- reasons that these people are doing this research. You know, not, they're, they're also doing it, by the way, for basic science research, right? You know, they mm-hmm. want to get a sense of, you know, what e- are the causes of, of aging and, and, and what can we do to be, perhaps reverse that, that process. So that's one of the motivators. But they also say explicitly exactly what you just did. You know, I, we want to have, uh, allow our healthcare providers to be as informed as possible, right? And, but they also do say, Rob, you know, that maybe we'll be able to motivate people to change their behavior. We know that doesn't happen, right? We know that doesn't happen. So I think we, when you produce this kind of information, you really need to ask, how is it going to be used? Is it really going to be helpful? Because so often, so often, and not always with the elderly, but so often the answer is the same. You know, you don't smoke, you exercise, uh, you eat lots of fruits and vegetables, you sleep, you know, you surround yourself with people that you love. There isn't a lot of magic, right? And that's going to be the same answer almost regardless of what any test tells you. Yeah, I mean, is it possible the healthcare system then, as you, you allude to, can potentially discriminate against people? Well, this blood test says you're a lost cause. We're not going to we're not going to devote resources to helping you. We already know what what your fate is. Yeah, and that, I think that's a concern, and, and we've heard that again with other kind of technologies. You know, are they going to say you know this is a really expensive procedure? It comes with a lot of risks. It looks like you're going to die in five years, so, you know, should we really, as a society, invest in this, and as a patient, do you really want it? You know, I think the latter is the kind of conversation that you do want. You know, here are all your risks, and here's what we can do. Here are the side effects. Uh, but it gets a little scarier when you think that the healthcare system might be using that information to make allocation decisions. You know, that doesn't happen very often, I think. Our system is built uh, with a focus on, on patients, but but you worry if this becomes a really robust technology that it might have more sway. Well, and look, I mean, we do have privacy laws in place. Um, you know, maybe we're, we're a little complacent in that whatever new technology confronts us in the future, we're prepared to deal with it. I, I don't know that we are. Are we having the kind of conversations we need to be having? Um, I, I think that the privacy one is really interesting, Rob, because it, it, increasingly it seems like privacy is an illusion, right? You know, yeah. uh, this information gets out one way or the other. So, um, I don't, I don't think we're necessarily having, you know, the conversations around that that we need to as a system because we always think, well, the answer is confidentiality, the answer is privacy, but we've seen so often that that, that can't be maintained. Uh, so I think we need to, to grapple with what society is going to do with this information regardless. Yeah, it's a fascinating issues. Tim, appreciate the insight. Uh, as always, thanks for making some time for us here today. Uh, thanks a lot, Rob. Take care. Tim Caulfield at the University of Alberta, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy, also Research Director of the Health Law Institute. Uh, you can watch A User's Guide to Cheating Death on Netflix. And uh, the highly entertaining book is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything. So, yeah, what, what do we make of something like this? You know, I suspect if we get to this point, initially it's going to kind of be like, you know, you can send away to these DNA companies and they'll come back and they'll give you sort of, uh, you know, what your genetic risks of all of these various things are. It's, it's basically on demand. Anybody who wants to do that can get that information. And maybe it'll be this way with these blood tests. And we're going to talk about uh, technology. Uh, and the concern about the impact that certain technology could have on elections going forward. And that includes deep fake, these so-called deep fakes. Have you seen some of these? We should be freaked the hell out 
by some of this deep fake technology. There was an interesting piece. It was uh, Jordan Peterson wrote about this in the National Post the other day. There was some website. And this isn't even deep fake video. This was some website that could basically, you could uh, anything you wanted to be said, this website could generate it as though Jordan Peterson was saying it. Which is disturbing enough, right? But you look at what they can do with videos. It is insane. God, there was one I saw just a couple of weeks ago. You probably heard about it. Someone took a, a clip of Bill Hader. He was doing an interview on uh, David Letterman's show. And he was, during the interview, kind of imitating Tom Cruise, imitating Seth Rogen. And while he's doing these impressions, his face was morphing into Tom Cruise and into Seth Rogen. And it was seamless and flawless. And so there it is, Tom Cruise's face on, on Bill Hader. Um, and, and we're just at the beginning of, of this technology. So you think about future elections. There's a, a video clip of that candidate saying something outrageous. Well, wait a sec. <laughs> is, is that real? How are we going to know? Uh, so, yeah, that, that to me is something we should really be freaked out about. But we saw in, in 2016 in the U.S. federal election, you know, the impact uh, technology can have. And so I think we need to be aware of, you know, bots and the, the impact that can have on social media, AI and, yeah, stuff like deep fakes. New study out from the McDonald Laurier Institute takes a closer look at how this technology is shaping the fight against foreign political interference. Uh, joining us to talk more about some of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program, Alex Wilner, Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, also a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Alex, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. To me, it seems like we're asking the kind of questions that I don't know that we were asking, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. How, how unique a challenge is this? We weren't uh, asking these questions even two years ago, yeah. to be honest. Um, propaganda has been around for generations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, long, long time. Um, so what's happening and what's new, uh, certainly over the last, let's say, 10 years, is digital foreign interference. DFI for short. That's propaganda for the internet age. And then what's further new about this is the nexus, the the intersection between digital foreign interference and emerging technologies like AI and deepfakes. So this is this is the space in which the report's trying to explore. It's you know digital foreign interference, past, present, and future. Um, and so you brought up you know the U.S. election. That is a form of digital foreign interference. It was m- largely human generated. But uh, as trends suggest, the future of DFI is um, augmented by, by computer programs like artificial intelligence and other forms of algorithms. So what was, what was new and unique about what we saw in 2016? I think what happened here, and 2016 is just one, uh, it's a major case from the U.S. The report focuses on cases from Germany, U.K., France, Taiwan, all uh, democracies, right? Because the focus here is on, on how this stuff affects democracies like Canada. Um, the point is that ultimately that is, is that foreign states or entities working on the behalf of foreign states are able to much more uh, carefully curate information uh, using digital means and social media uh, platforms to then tailor that information so that it meets their foreign interests rather than the domestic interests of their targets. And so that's quite nefarious. And the, the point is ultimately that digital foreign interference uh, creates political uncertainty within the uh, target country. It could promote tension, civic tension between 
different communities, and we saw that in the U.S. Mm-hmm. in 2016, and it can promote the interests of a foreign country such that citizens of the target country react to the information that they're getting, even though it's fake or false or, or misinformed anyways, and they're promoting behavior or policy that meets the demands of a foreign entity. So th- this, is the, this is what's new. It's a, it's a new way for states to affect change in other countries. Well, in, in terms of the social media element, um, because it, it's become such an important part of our lives and, and how people stay informed or the perception then that, you know, what people are talking about is, you know, it kind of impacts how we perceive things and, and the people we think we trust that we're friends with uh, on, on social media, what they're talking about that has an influence on the things that we talk about or how we perceive things. So how, how valuable a tool is, is social media when it comes to influencing people? Uh, hugely valuable. I mean, information via social media crosses boundaries lightning quick. Very few um, restrictions to that information. Um, not a lot of understanding of how that information is um, taken in by individuals, the psychological process of sharing information. And so it is, um, it's providing some states, Russia, notably China as well, and others, uh, new access to uh, populations of their adversary, adversary countries, new access to, the, to those populations. And so social media provides, and, and the technology within social media provides these countries with access to uh, communities that they, they didn't have access to in previous uh, eras. And then through bot technology, AI technology, uh, does, does that amplify the reach then of, of this kind of campaign? Right. So, you know, the kind of bots... You know, bots are basically programs that boost material, or they push material, or they flag material. Um, they provide services, very good services, but they can be used to provide uh, more nefarious services. And so what's happening, um, especially now with the advent of artificial intelligence, is that some of these bots will be provided with the ability to create social media content, to create it, not just to, not just to promote it, and so, and I, in your intro, you brought up deep fakes, but it's also the generation of synthesized text, of synthesized audio, of synthesized pictures and video material. And so you can imagine a near future in which so, social media is buried in a mountain of false information that far outweighs true information, if you will. And much of that false information will be generated by these artificial intelligence and and bots, such that the debates that we will have online via social media will be informed by material generated <laughs> for for specific, specific purposes. And so this is a kind of, you know, it's kind of a dark future, uh, but it is one that we need to um, explore and think about and also respond, if from a democratic perspective, respond um, with appropriate policies and other measures. Right, because it's the kind of thing that can come from you know, from foreign adversaries that are looking to to cause trouble in in our campaigns. But it's also the kind of thing that can be deployed by, you know, various third-party groups or or even, you know, nefarious actors within political parties that are prepared to to stoop to those levels to discredit their political opponent. I mean, it's the kind of technology that's not exclusive to foreign adversaries using. No, absolutely not. It's, as you said, um, private companies can do this. Even NGOs can use this. and individuals themselves. I mean, if you want to embarrass your neighbor for whatever reason, um, you can hire a deep fake 
program and and programmers to to create material that will hi- that will be highly embarrassing to your neighbor for whatever reason, right? Um, we see this already in the form of revenge revenge porn, yeah. um, right, and and other forms of sexual harassment online. And so, you know, uh, it's the future in which deepfakes and the technology behind it um, can be used to disseminate disinformation and misinformation at, at at any level between states, between firms, between communities and individuals. Because I think maybe we we get a little complacent in Canada and thinking that this is something that that's you know more specific to foreign interference in elections and that 2016 was a kind of unique example because it was you know maybe the russians having a preferred outcome and it was just kind of unique to those circumstances but you know it wasn't just about the candidates in that election this is about sowing chaos as you say this kind of thing has happened in in other elections in other countries canada's not immune from this even if russia or china or other adversaries might not have a preferred outcome in our election, it doesn't mean they're not prepared to cause trouble for us. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, in the case of the U.S., as you mentioned, and and certainly in, in the recent French presidential elections and in German electoral processes, foreign actors, mostly uh, Russia, though it's hard to identify them um, concretely, um, have used disinformation and misinformation to affect political change. Um, it's hard to causally link, right? It's hard to say disinformation campaigns led to, you know, a, a specific change in the voting behavior, but nonetheless, right. we, the for, um, intelligence apparatus suggests that there was a campaign, but but it's it's more it's more it's much more than that. So for a recent example, last year, um, the Brits were investigating the um, Russian-led poisoning uh, near assassination of uh, a former KGB um, or, or anyways for, former Russian intelligence officer uh, Skripal, Sergei Skripal, and in their uh, publication in the British official uh, investigation in the publication of some of the material, including pictures of the two Russian hitmen coming off uh, their planes in the UK, um, there, was a mis- there was a disinformation campaign very much, very likely led by Russia to discredit the official investigation, right, to, to, to mock the British investigation. And this played out not only on social media, but through official Russian channels. And so what the, the message here isn't just to affect political change through the electoral process, it's to discredit the institutions, in this case, policing and, and intelligence institutions within the, the democracy. And so, you know, it, we, while, yes, Canada is, is coming towards um, our own uh, federal election and we should be concerned uh, about misinformation and disinformation therein, it's also, you know, ad hoc events that, um, that we might find ourselves in, in this case, like the Scripple investigation, that uh, might be a, a prime target by foreign actors, in this case Russia, to manipulate the, the sort of information that we have in place to meet their ends, right? So again, it's, it's well beyond um, just elections. It's about the way that we generate true information and the way that Canadians and citizens of a democracy uh, take that information in, in understanding and practicing democracy. But, I mean, it feels like uh, such an enormous task. I mean, part of it is that complacency in, in convincing Canadians that we need to do something about it. But then there's also the perception that it's it's hopeless, uh, you know, when it comes to technology. There's no putting technology back in, in the toothpaste. Too. Once it's out there, it's out there. I mean, can, are, are there meaningful steps we can take? I think there are. I don't think all is, uh, all, all is too bleak. I mean, there are, you know, some solutions... 
um, have to go through the corporations that run these platforms, social media platforms, or um, corporations and laboratories that are developing the machinery, themselves, the, you know, the, the algorithms themselves. You know, some of these companies, and, and, and we're doing this already, they're being held accountable for information uh, posted online. They're being told and regulated and, and otherwise uh, compelled to flag and delete uh, fake news or especially inflammatory material. We see that on YouTube. We see that on Twitter, for instance. And they're being encouraged to be more transparent in, in the way that they themselves use artificial intelligence to boost material. So that, that, you know, that's, a, that's an approach that uses the technology and the, and the makers of the technology towards um, uh, protecting democracy. But the, geo, the geopolitical aspect here is that Canada is through Global Affairs Canada, working with partners, like-minded partners through the G7 and other democratic uh, institutions internationally to establish best practices, both at the domestic level and international level, and shared responses for addressing uh, misinformation campaigns. So it matters when the UK uh, feels as though it's being the target of a disinformation campaign. Canada, in some cases, could and does stand up to disinformation campaign on behalf of the UK, and so they prevent, they pr- sorry, they promote a common uh, front against the misinformation campaign, and the idea would be then that the UK would, of course, assist us in a similar condition if we were to be the target. And so there's, you know, there's there's policies that are in place for addressing this from the uh, corporate world and from the geopolitical world, and then of course I think from the domestic side, you know, better awareness. Uh, interviews like this, for instance, should help. Better awareness among Canadians, better um, cyber literacy and technological literacy as to what um, uh, Canadians face online. I think that makes sense, too. So there's multiple ways in which we can tackle this uh, moving forward. Well, it is a fascinating and an important issue. Uh, the report is called The Threat of Digital Foreign Interference, Past, Present, and Future. It's uh, online at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Alex, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you. That is uh, Alex Wilner. He's an assistant professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, also Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. You know, the whole issue with these video forgeries, the so-called deep fakes, right? There are obvious political implications. You know, even something as, as obvious as faking a debate club. It's so easy for things to quickly go viral on Facebook. Wow, look at this clip from the debate last night. Can you believe that that so-and-so said this? People are so quick to say, oh, my God, I better share that. And boom, 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 it spreads. But how many people watch the debate? How many people know that that never even happened in the debate? Just something as innocuous as that. It's it's so easy for that stuff to spread. And in the future, it's going to be so hard to to catch these forgeries. I mean, already it's it's insane. So as mentioned, the provincial government had to shut down the Alberta legislature grounds waiting pool earlier this week after two e-scooters were dumped in the water there. Uh, Edmonton, like here in Calgary, have uh, welcomed uh, these e-scooters. And, and I do think we're still in that, that phase where these are new. We're kind of adjusting to this new reality. People seem to really like these. They've proven to be quite popular here in Calgary, but there have been a lot of frustrations expressed. Certainly, I, I think part of it involves maybe the irresponsible manner in which some people are using these. Uh, people have been injured with, you know, collisions or confrontations with, uh, with e-scooters. And, yeah, there's the issue of, of where people are leaving these. I mean, the, 
it's meant to be part of the appeal, the convenience. You get the app, you check the app. Is there an e-scooter nearby? Sure, there's one over there. You go, you use the app to unlock it, and you're on your way, whizzing along. And then when you're done, just leave it wherever. And then someone else will come use it next time. But other cities have gone through this. I think Calgary's going through this, Edmonton, obviously, where you got an issue where these are just being dumped all over the place, being left on private property. And it becomes a real issue. And so if at some point we decide we don't like these e-scooters anymore, I think this will be one of the reasons why. So is there a way around this? Is there a way to encourage companies or the customers to be a little more responsible in how they use these? Because I think this can be, you know, an effective transportation alternative for a lot of people. You know, where you've got potentially a 10 or a 15 or 20 minute walk. Uh, One of these e-scooters, it's a great way of getting where you need to go. Or if you're on vacation, a great way of, of seeing part of the city, seeing the downtown core. Well, joining us for some thoughts on how municipalities have adjusted to this new reality and whether there's a, a meaningful way that we can tackle this abandonment problem. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program uh, Sarah Katz, a research associate and a lecturer, uh, Urban Planning and Public Policy Department, the Institution of Transportation Studies, University of California, Irvine. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Sarah, are you there? Sorry, thank oh, you. Good go. afternoon. Sarah, thanks for Sorry joining us here. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, no worries. Um, it's interesting because I, I think, you know, with Calgary, with Edmonton, uh, they're, they're encountering, I mean, th- th- this has been a challenge in a number of other cities too, hasn't it? It really has. And Southern California has been hit with some major issues, major accidents, major, just a mess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, we, we've been experiencing it for probably almost two years now. Is that right? What, what's, yes. what tends to be the biggest issue, or the biggest source of frustration when it comes to e-scooters? Well, there's two things. One, as you noted, people are being fairly inconsiderate, and they're just leaving them wherever. And people are tripping over them. People are um, just knocking into them and, and frustrating you know, the passerbys or the people who have to use the sidewalks or the streets. And the second thing is that the scooter companies, some of the scooter companies were very um, neglectful of cities and their regulations so that one day people come to work who work at a city hall and all of a sudden there are literally a hundred scooters that have been left on the street. Nobody contacted the city. Nobody worked with the city to figure out where they should go. And... And so it's ma'am. I mean, people are just, you know, beside themselves. So they're not getting support from the beginning. And instead of working together and collaborating, it's been an uphill battle. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, the whole design of the system sort of lends itself to that, doesn't it? Because once the person riding the scooter is, is done, they don't care. Uh, right. You know, it doesn't impact the company as long as somebody's going to come along at some point and, and use that scooter again. What do they care? Exactly. Um, so, so there, there's no real vested interest, I guess, that in, in terms of encouraging more responsible use. Right. And it's so I think there's a very easy solution, and you're not hearing a lot of talk about it, but to me it's a no-brainer. 
And that is, just like when you go to the airport and you put money in to take a luggage cart out, you get some of your money back when you bring the cart back to the the yeah. machine. And I think if if somebody would implement that kind of strategy so that, say, it's Bird Scooter, um, that they have actual, I, I think this term is really cute, they're not using it yet, but they've had, they have nests, and the nest is where you bring the scooter back, and once the scooter touches that zone, then you get a partial refund, or you get points toward a gift card, or some kind of, you know, badge system uh, that motivates a person to bring it back and be considerate. Or not necessarily bring it back, but bring it to a place that's not disrupting society, so to speak. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, some some grocery stores, supermarkets, where, you know, they got a problem with shopping carts being left all over the place or around the neighborhood. They implement a system where you need to put a quarter or a a dollar coin in, and once you put the shopping cart back where you got it, you you get that that change back. I mean, something that simple can make a huge difference. Exactly. It would work here, but as you say, this hasn't really been implemented anywhere, has it? No, and I don't hear anybody talking about it, which is really, um, it, it's just a shame because I think it'd be a great way to motivate people to be considerate and a great way not to be in the way of the users of the sidewalks and the streets. And there there have been such issues in some places. China was the first country to to allow scooters, and there were so many in the way the street the the street workers would just pick the scooters up and they literally threw them in this dump yard <laughs> and i have a picture that's incredible and it's just a graveyard of scooters of thousands of scooters and in i think it was san diego california they were just repossessing the scooters and they were basically yeah. you know how you tow a car and you bring it to a tow yard and you have to take your you have to pay to get your car out. Well, they were doing that with the scooters, and some of the scooter companies came and got their scooters, but they were fined quite a bit. Right. Yeah, it was San Diego. I think I read about that, where there was a company that started up, so people were you know, concerned that someone had dumped a scooter on their front lawn. You call up this company, they'll come pick it up, they'll take it to their lot, and if this scooter company wants it back, they can, they can pay a certain amount. Now, the scooter companies right. didn't like that very much, but it's kind of a symptom of this problem, it would seem. Right. And again, I think the scooter companies are at fault for not thinking this through. They came up with a great idea. I think scooters are wonderful. I really do. I think they are a solution to that last mile problem when you get to a transit station. How do you get to work or how do you get to your destination? And I think scooters are a great solution, but they haven't been thought through. Well, yeah, and that's an important point, then. I guess the question, then, of whether we sort of have a broader vested interest in this story from a public policy perspective, a transportation perspective, you know, should we be rooting for these to succeed? Exactly. I mean, I I am rooting. I personally am rooting for them to succeed. I just wish they had done it, started it a little differently. Now, obviously, it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I think that... Um, they still have a chance to make this work and to not get the cities and the people who aren't using scooters upset with them. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there's still the question, I guess, of how they're, they're being operated. Um, and, and that may still be an issue. But this abandonment problem, it seems, could be addressed pretty easily. Um, right. 
I guess but it's see. not just a, an eyesore. Mm-hmm. And people are falling over them. They're walking, you know, all of a sudden there's a scooter and they trip over it okay. or they, they can't get around it. And so it, it is a, a physical problem. Yeah, it is. And and that's the thing. And I mean, it's one of those things that I think could really uh, undo this whole experiment that, you know, people will turn against it if, if that becomes an issue. And, and, and we'll have lost this, even though there are some potential transportation benefits to it. Right. Yeah. Not, not to mention that they also have to figure out how to get people to use helmets and how to get people to um, follow the laws and the regulations in general so that cars and scooters aren't hitting each other well yeah there's that too uh well yeah some important points here sarah uh appreciate make some time for us here today thanks so much for the conversation thank you all right take, take care. care uh that is sarah counts research associate at the institute of transportation studies university of california irvine so in her view i mean it, it seems pretty simple the solution almost like the, the grocery store i think when i said to her dollar coin she must have raised an eyebrow maybe she's familiar with loonies but that's kind of the norm at a lot of grocery stores right we don't want our shopping carts being left all over the place. So you put a loony in, use the shopping cart, then you put it back, you get your loony back. If you don't care about a dollar or a quarter, whatever it is, then fine, leave the cart wherever. But it's at least an incentive. Now, that's not to say you put a loony into the e-scooter, although I don't know, maybe you could, you could implement that. Uh, but it can just be a little credit on the account. I mean, that's part of the, you know, the appeal of all of this is, is the app technology. You know, same thing with Uber, same thing with Skip the Dishes. People just like that simplicity. You set up the account, you've got the app, no fuss. But you could have then some docking stations spread out, at least amongst, you know, the, the more popular areas. So if you're using your e-scooter to get from point A to point B, ideally nearby there would be kind of like a docking station. So you got a choice to make. You can just leave the scooter there. And carry on with your day. Or you can take a couple of minutes, take it over to the docking station and get, you know, that little rebate or that little credit or the points or whatever it is. Seems simple enough to me. Well, once again, confronted with the question of where, where does free speech end and where does hate speech become something that we need to deal with, that we need to prosecute? Uh, it's a fine line, and it's a controversial question. Uh, but certainly the case of this um, newspaper, I guess we can call it that, your ward news. I mean, there's no doubt that what was contained in this publication was beyond the pale, was hateful. I, I think that's beyond, beyond doubt. So then the question becomes, well, what do we do with those responsible for it? Uh, James Sears uh, was the editor of your ward news. And Leroy St. Germain, who's the publisher, have been convicted and now sentenced to prom- uh, for promoting hatred. Uh, James Sears got the maximum one-year prison term handed down last week. Uh, Leroy St. Germain, perhaps because of his age, 78 years old, was sentenced to 12 months of house arrest. So he avoids going to jail. But it's pretty clear that he feels no regrets no remorse oh i think i'll definitely appeal yeah the conviction and the sentence and for me to have other people telling me what i can and cannot say doesn't it just doesn't go with the grain here what, what would you say to people who feel that they were victimized by your wardens <laughs> i'd say suck it up and get over it 
Wow. Yeah. Okay. Look, pretty clearly a, a nasty, nasty man, full of hatred in his heart. Unfortunately, that's not going to change. Uh, outside court today, prosecutor Jamie Kuklach um, acknowledged those who don't want people prosecuted for what they say. To criminalize speech is somewhat controversial. But here the line is drawn very high at, at hatred. And something that rises to that level of stirring up those kinds of feelings toward vulnerable groups, that has serious social harm. And in today's current climate, it's become a greater concern. It's proliferating. So we handled this the right way. Have we sent the right message here as a society uh, about this kind of hatred? Well, joining us for some reaction uh, to the conviction, the sentences, uh, Noah Schacht joins us, Vice President of the GTA area for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Noah, appreciate making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, your reaction, uh, first of all, to the sentences, uh, James Sears did get 12 months in prison. It was 12 months house arrest today for Leroy Saint-Germain. Um, your reaction? Well, I think it's extremely important uh, for people who are promoting hatred in our society, something that is so antithetical to everything we stand for as Canadians, to be held accountable uh, and to be condemned by the highest uh, uh, office in our land, the courts, uh, I think that um, having them convicted and sentenced to the maximum uh, time period uh, is sends a powerful message to anyone out there who would uh, seek to promote hatred against an identifiable group. Um, these individuals were foisting a uh, hateful propaganda that was not just offensive, but obscene uh, in terms of stoking hatred uh, in others towards Jews and women. Uh, it was full and rife with racism, uh, misogyny, uh, homophobia, and other forms of hatred. And uh, this is a moment of justice uh, for Canadian society, uh, for those who were victimized by the paper, and hopefully will send an important message in a time where we're increasingly seeing uh, what uh, starts with hateful words often leading to acts of violence. And that, and that really is um, something that needs to be considered here, that the words themselves are atrocious, that the targeting of any other group to promote hatred against them is antithetical to Canadian values, and the prospect of that hatred leading to acts of violence is something that we need to guard against uh, to the full extent of the law, and I think that's been achieved here in this case. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right. I mean, it was it was just virulent. It was it was excessive. It was it was abhorrent. I mean, in a way, that's almost been a, an, an argument against prosecuting them that was so over the top as as to to you know the kind of thing that that who could possibly take this seriously we've got hate groups out there that are much more sophisticated in their hateful propaganda these two certainly weren't trying to be sophisticated well look i i i don't know what uh sorts of hateful messages resonate with with people out there uh certainly the sophisticated ones are are just as worrisome Mm -hmm. uh but when somebody breaks a law they need to be held accountable for breaking that law. And in this case, justice has been served. Uh, I, I, I think it's extremely disappointing that uh, neither uh, uh, of the individuals in question have expressed any sort of remorse or understanding of, of what they've done. Uh, of course, this isn't the first time that somebody's been convicted of a crime uh, and fails to express remorse for, for committing that crime. Um, but uh, I think, you know, the value of demonstrating that if you break this law in Canada, if you promote 
hatred against an identifiable group in this country. There are consequences. You will be prosecuted and you will be held accountable before the law. Now, as the prosecutor said in that clip we played, the bar is set high when it comes to laying a charge of uh, promoting hatred under the Criminal Code of Canada. Uh, you need a sign-off from the Attorney General. That's that's why, you know, we don't see these kinds of cases prosecuted very often. You, your, your thoughts on, you know, how and when we use this law, and obviously you believe it was properly applied here. Yeah, I think it was in this case, and, and I think having a high bar is crucial. We don't want uh, everything to get captured under uh, our hate speech laws, only the most egregious examples. Um, uh, there's a lot of room for free speech in our society, and it's uh, a cornerstone of a free and democratic society. But when that free speech is abused to undermine the freedom of others, to stoke hatred against them, uh, and inspire others to hate, uh, that is a step too far. And I think that um, uh, the prosecutor's were correct in in pursuing these charges, and and the and the judge was correct in uh, in convicting uh, the accused. As you pointed out, and as we heard in the clip, these, these two clearly lack any sort of remorse. That they are still filled with with hatred in their hearts, and and I think on top of that, now they sort of are able to portray themselves almost like martyrs, or they've certainly adopted that martyrdom complex. I mean, how do we balance that concern with holding people to account for promoting hatred, but also calling more attention to them? It's it's a it's an excellent point. I think uh, it's it's a it's a difficult question. Certainly, you know, I'm not interested in in these individuals having any greater of a platform to reach the masses with their hateful invective. Uh, the reality is that um, this conviction, the sentence, this this sentencing, uh, will have the effect of shutting down uh, their their uh, hate messaging. Um, at least for the time being, and sends a clear message out there to others who might be pondering uh, something similar, uh, that there are significant negative consequences for doing so. And I think that ultimately, if you break the law, you should be held accountable. And, uh, and that's what's happened in this case. Uh, and so the paper has, um, it, I mean, it's been shut down, right? That no one's, no one's still involved in this. No one is, is producing this, this particular publication anymore. Yeah, my understanding is that that's one of the conditions of the sentence, that uh, they're not allowed to continue to publish the paper, uh, which makes sense given that it was a platform for for uh, hate promotion. Uh, and, and um, you know, uh, this is something that, uh, that Canada Post was right to get on uh, from the get-go uh, in suspending their ability to uh, send it out and use the national mail service to force this onto the doorsteps of uh, of Canadians. Um, whether or not they'll test the limits uh, and continue to push out hateful messages, I can't say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's good to know that uh, both the police and prosecutors and the courts uh, have recognized that this kind of of hate promotion has no place in our society. And, uh, and it will be condemned uh, uh, with the full force of the law. Well, hopefully we've heard the last of these two, but I, I hope we'll, so. we'll have to wait and see. More to well, see, they, they yeah. have the appeal coming up yeah, as well, so we'll, right. we'll see. And I'm, I'm confident that, the, that uh, uh, given their lack of remorse, that uh, the appeals will not be successful. All right. More at CIJA.ca. Noah, appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me. All right. Noah Schack, Vice President, GTA of the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CIJA. 
Ca. So the reaction to the conviction, the sentences, they feel it was appropriate here. There was a high bar when it comes to a prosecution of willfully promoting hatred. Uh, they feel that that's, that was met here and that it was appropriate to not just convict them, but to hand down these sentences 12 months in jail for James Sears and 12 months house arrest for Leroy Saint-Germain. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.